Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio.
You are listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, All Black, All News, All You, for Saturday, November 26, 2011. This new internet-based broadcast is designed to service African Americans in Chicago and surrounding areas. Today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. We hope that you join us monthly as we reach out to authors around the country with discussions about their books and the industry. Dr. Shabazz is the co-owner of Books, Inc. Bookstore in Chicago, Illinois, and has been in the bookselling business for over 30 years. So this is definitely where you want to be if you have a love for books. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network, executive producer, producer of Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, and author of Black America, Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, Book 1, 2010, and Constance's co-host for this show. Now, you were you were listening to pianist uh, Mr. Boise Queen, who is a member of CBBN, and uh, he has some fantastic things. You can come over to our site and listen to some of his music. Our call-in number is 347-326-9477. Our call-in number is 347-326-9477. Our chat room is open, and you can leave your company information and website links in our chat room we look forward to hearing from you. Let's go ahead and welcome our host to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shabazz. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and good morning to all of our listeners. Uh, I am, as usual, very excited about our segment today. Uh, we have uh, three exciting authors that we're going to be interviewing uh, but before we get into the, the rest of our program, I, I want to talk a little bit about who we are. Uh, again, my name is Constance Shabazz, and I'm the co-owner of Books, Inc. Uh, we're one of the few existing African-American-owned bookstores here in the Chicago area. Uh, but we're more than a bookstore. Uh, we are really, uh, I would say, the wind beneath a lot of people's wind wing, so to speak, uh, when it comes to books and literary events. Uh, we've been in business for over 30 years, and one of the passions that we have had for the past, say, 15 or, or 20 years is really trying to help authors to get their work to the literary marketplace. And it's been a, an exciting journey. We've had the opportunity to work with a lot of wonderful authors, uh, some very well-known, some not-so-known uh, but it's been a, a fantastic uh, journey. This is all part of that journey. Uh, about 10 years ago, we tried to launch this idea of doing a radio program where we would be able to talk to authors as well as to talk to people in the industry. We know that this industry has been turned on its heels by uh, the access to ebooks and the like. And so we want to be sure that we, particularly African-American authors, are able to get that work out there just like any other others. And we, we helped to develop programs. Most recently we had our fifth annual author showcase at Carter G. Woodson Library. Uh, we had close to 50 authors out, and it was a fantastic time. Uh, there was a lot of sharing of information, how to create as well as produce and develop and to get out into the marketplace of the wonderful literature that people are writing. Uh, today's program um, really is, is just uh, the third one that we've had, but we've been really, really blessed to have had some great interviews. 
Uh, we were joined by Lisa Woodson, a.k.a. Nelena Kai, the author of Every Woman Needs a Wife, uh, upcoming author Deanna Burrell. Uh, both of them show, sh- shared with our listening audience uh, the things that they're using to promote their books out there in the literary marketplace. Also, last segment, we had an interview with Laverne Nissy Brown, uh, who's with Reader's Paradise Book Club, and she has been an avid reviewer of books for many years. And so she shared with us uh, a lot of the insight uh, of how these publishing companies come to decide what books they're going to pick up. And uh, so she's been an invaluable individual out there who's helped authors to get their work to the literary marketplace. So we've been extremely blessed to have some exciting um, participants on our show, and and that stands true for today. Uh, But before we we, uh, talk about our authors who are going to be interviewing today, I'd like to talk a little bit about some upcoming events. As as you know, BookTank is and foremost out there doing uh, literary events in in the Chicago area. And so we've got a couple of events that we want to talk about to be sure that our listeners take advantage of. Uh, This coming Saturday, December the 3rd, uh, from 1 to 3 p.m., we're going to be hosting some of the authors who have participated in the fifth edition of Expressions from Inglewood. Uh, this is a journal that includes short stories, poems, and even artwork in it. Uh, the editor, uh, Corey Hall, will be the host, as well as he will be joined by five of the writers who participated in this journal. So this will be a wonderful opportunity for you to come out and meet and greet, and please support them. Come out and buy a book. Uh, this is truly an expression from a, a neighborhood that, from which we had so many talented people come. A lot of people don't remember, but uh, playwright Lorraine Hansberry went to Inglewood High School. So we, we have so much history there, and we know that we uh, are, I want to continue promoting uh, the, the literary talent that comes out of that community. So it's a free event. Again, it's from 1 to 3 p.m. next Saturday, December the 3rd. The address is BookSync. 1835 West 103rd Street here in Chicago. Also, the next Friday, December the 9th, we're going to be hosting actually one of our interviewees for today, Brian W. Smith. Uh, He's going to be there doing a book signing from 4 to 7 p.m. at Book Tank. He's going to be, uh, this is part of his book launch tour for his book, If Trees Could Talk, If if These Trees Could Talk. And uh, we invite you to come out and join us. That's going to be, again, Friday, December the 9th, from 4 to 7 p.m., Books, Inc., 1835 West 103rd Street, Chicago, Illinois. Also, Books, Inc. uh, does some other exciting things. We're going to have a little Holly Bazaar, as we call it. It's going to be on the weekend of the 16th, 17th, and 18th at our store. Come on by. We've got, uh, we're going to have women's clothing from B Boutique. We're going to have jewelry from Simply Elegant Jewelry, as well as embellished jewelry, and we're also going to have collectibles from Exquisite Accessories. So come on by. The hours will be from 10 to 6 p.m. on Friday the 16th and Saturday the 17th, and from 11 to 5 p.m. on Sunday the 18th. So now we we want to get into uh, 
our our guests, uh, introduce our, who our guests are going to be for today's show. Uh, our first uh, author that we're going to be joined by was Laura uh, Lee Huff. Uh, also, we have a uh, filmmaker and uh, documentary filmmaker and author, uh, Frank Lawrence. And we will be joined at the end of our show by Brian W. Smith. So at this time, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to start our interview with Dorley Huff. For Saturday, November 26th, today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. We hope that you join us monthly as we reach out to authors, around the country with discussions about their books and the industry. Our call-in number is 347-326-9477, and I'll repeat that for you. Our call-in number is 347-326-9477. Our chat room is open. Please leave your comments there. We'll be right back after this break. Black love. What is black love? A simple yet elusive, totally not exclusive question of the many who have sought it, but know not what it ought to be and seek more. Black love. Deceptive black love. Looking at them fine asses through rose-colored glasses, put mommy through the paces, take her many places she ain't never been before. Black love, insatiable black love, checking out the new man in the flat upstairs and trying not to seem rude or crude, yet pursuing your desires and showing interest. Black love, transitory black love, seeking financial wealth for the benefit of self, Getting more toys than most of the boys. Will this alone prove who's best? Black love. Prodigious black love. Is it being seen in public places, looking in children's faces, while being hypocritically analytical about our bad past deeds? Black love, sincere black love, what does it truly mean? It's a thing we somehow seem to constantly abuse, blatantly misuse to satisfy our own selfish needs. Black love, celebrated black love, devoid of it we will constantly be in turmoil, disjointed and torn. From the moment we're born, needing true love, the kind that always maintains. Black love, righteous black love. My feelings are it's when the spoken of begins to dedicate and eradicate bad connotations to our name. Black love, conquering black love. It will never be defeated if we strive for all to see that we can do as we have done. 
Black love. Classic black love. As a people, we have rich history and must show all others we can work in unison. Black love. Transcendent black love. Immersed in the splendor of it, we rehash, rehearse, We'll then achieve that elusively persuasive thing we seek. So, if it's black love, that true black love we seek and want the meaning of, it's not elusive or unavailable. There is no big mystique, you see. It's really quite obtainable. We simply have to look inside of that we're all quite able. Loving who lives within, into the search. For true black love. You're listening to WJPCF in Chicago's Community Affairs Calendar, powered by Chicago's Black Business Network. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network. Join us today and touch the world. The UAPA says that if we buy black, we can erase unemployment. The United American Progress Association asks that you save your receipts from each of the black-owned businesses where you shopped in the past month and bring them every fourth Monday to the United American Progress Association meeting at 1716 West 79th Street at 7 p.m. Once again, the meetings will be held at 1715 West 79th Street in Chicago at 7 p.m. each fourth Monday. For more information, call 773-952-8829. That's 773-952-8829. We're the soul of Chicago. WJPC. We're back and we're thankful for Thankful for our supporter, WJPCFM Chicago, the soul of Chicago. You can listen to a rebroadcast of our shows on our Community Affairs Day, which is Saturdays, uh, right there at www.wjpcchicago.com. Right now you're listen, listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, All Black, All News, All You. Today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. Dr. Shabazz is the co-owner of Books, Inc. in Chicago and has been in the book-selling business for over 30 years. Books, Inc. Bookstore is one of the few African-American-owned bookstores in the Chicagoland area. They are located at 1835 West 103rd Street, right off the Metro train over there, 1835 West 103rd Street. You can also visit them online at booksinkonline.com or you may contact them at 773-330-4115, 773-330-4115. Books, Inc. Bookstore is involved in some great upcoming events, and we hope that Dr. Shabazz will share that information again with us before the end of the show. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network. We have approximately 800 members, well, almost 900 members now, and we want you to come over and join us and touch the world. Uh, I'm executive producer of Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. We want you to listen to Black Wall Street USA on Thursday evenings with host 
chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, Ron Carter. That's 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. right here on Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. I am also the author of Black America, Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, Book 1, 2010, and Constance co-host for this show. And we're very excited to have this show. The reception is just exceptional. Let's welcome our host back to the show, Constance. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. And before we bring our first guest on, I just want to remind our listening audience that you can call in to today's show. Don't forget to call in. The number is 347-326-9477. So if you have a question or you want to make a comment, please use that number, 347-326-9477. Well, it gives me great pleasure to uh, bring on our first author for today. Uh, her name is Yorley Huff, and she's a Chicago native, uh, and she's had an interesting journey to where, uh, uh, to the point she's become a, a published author, and I'd like to share a little bit about that journey. Uh, in 1992, uh, in Chicago, she uh, joined the Cook County Sheriff's Police Department as a special drug agent uh, at the, as she says, the tender age of 24. American undercover agents in the task force, and she excelled in her work despite uh, being faced with racism and discrimination. Unfortunately, she had to file a suit against them in 1997, and she made history uh, by winning her battle after 11 years. Uh, Yorley is also an accomplished entrepreneur. Uh, she's the owner of Just For You Balloons, which she founded in 1992. In 2008, she founded Engendering Strength, Inc., a company that's devoted to inspiring and empowering women. Uh, Yorley has written uh, a book entitled The Veil of Victory, which is an account of her life from childhood to her victory over the Cook County Sheriff's Department, Police Department, and this was published in October of 2010. And uh, she recently uh, also completed a a comic book, part of a comic book series called Superhero Huff. And she's also doing a second book entitled Testimony Time. Uh, Lurley just returned from South Africa on a powerful speaking tour to empower, encourage, and enlighten the, the people on matters of discrimination and, uh, and abuse. And she's also the recipient of the Remarkable Woman Award from America's Time Out for Youth, Inc. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to bring to the airwaves Lurley Huff. Good morning. Good morning. How are you both? Oh, we're doing just fine. We're so happy to have you on this morning. And we want to hear a little bit more about your story. Tell us what happened with you with regards to the Cook County Sheriff's Department and how that ended up transpiring into you writing a book about it. Well, I just want to give thanks to you and uh, Chicago Black Business Network and Sandra, uh, Sandra for allowing me to come on and share my story, my testimony, and uh, giving thanks to God and paying homage to my ancestors who allowed me to exist in this space with victory. Um, the story, The Veil of Victory, is a nonfictional autobiography, and it tells from the my birth until the settlement of the case with the Cook County Sheriff's Police Department. And uh, the story regarding my career with them talks about um, the racism and discrimination that I uh, experienced with them. 
I became an undercover drug agent with them in 1992, and uh, from day one experienced uh, racism uh, in smaller forms, and then it began to accelerate to uh, more obvious, exacerbated forms. I then uh, obtained evidence against them and filed a complaint internally uh, regarding the racism. And uh, it accelerated after that point into a death threat. They threatened to kill me. Mm. So I then had to engage the FBI because I had been reporting the incidents to EEOC, but they wouldn't take my charges. But after they um, issued this death threat against me, I had to involve the FBI. And the FBI aided me in getting my charges approved with EEOC and finally successfully lodging a complaint, a federal complaint, against the agency in 97. They, in turn, in response to that uh, filing of that lawsuit, they kicked me out, and uh, and we ensued with the lawsuit. It took us seven years to get to federal court to get to trial. It was a 22-day trial, and by that time, I had obtained copies of the tapes from the Internal Affairs Investigation where all of the officers confessed and some of the atrocities that the other officers in the office knew about testified to were just so egregious you wouldn't believe. But uh, after confessing and entering into a 22-day trial, during that trial they set my house on fire, and they continued with their forms of intimidation. Uh, they were found not guilty, and I had to engage and uh, employ another set of attorneys to file an appeal. And two years later, uh, won the overturning of that not guilty verdict and won a new trial, and we uh, ultimately settled in 2008. So an 11 year legal battle it took me to uh, obtain that victory. Hmm. Wow, that's awesome. Um, are you able to share with us some of the types of acts of discrimination that you were faced with? Oh, sure. My superior, uh, white superior at the time, told me that more black men need to beat their black women and more black women need to be beat to be kept in their place. Uh, my supervisor, who was a Hispanic, uh, called me a nigger. He called me a nigger so much. He called me a nigger in Spanish, which is which is uh, miates. And um, his brother, who was his superior, another Hispanic, which was my, which would have been my second, uh, second in command to uh, myself. He uh, made statements. I had another undercover uh, agent's car or something. My car was in the shop, and he said, make sure when she brings it back, there are no chicken bones and watermelon seeds in the car. Hmm. And I was regularly told uh, they would call internal affairs on me because I had uh, purchased a new truck and I built a new house. And so they felt that... uh, you know, blacks or niggas shouldn't have the ability to uh, have the wherewithal to manage their funds to get such things. Hmm. Well, well, let me ask you this. How are you able to document this uh, to be able to build your case? Well, uh, we got day calendars, like day planners, every year. 
And so I went from detailing my day of drug dealing to detailing my instances of discrimination. I would document the time. I would document where the location was, where exactly we were, the front part of the office, the hallway of the office. I would document who was there. I would document what was said. Uh, any witnesses that were around, the clothes that they wore that day. I would very detailed uh, document. I have, like, several several of these uh, diaries. I would write notes if I was out in the field and something happened in the field and I didn't have my day planner with me. I would document on paper anything I could get my hands on. But I would document so detailed that, it would tell you a story as if it was an investigative report from one of my drug deals. Mhm, mhm. And, and you know, one would ask the question: Well, you know, this was you, you against them. Um, how did they corroborate that what you were saying was accurate and true? Well, it was corroborated by other witnesses, and there was uh, a partner I talk about in the book, The Veil of Victory, J.D., who is a black male, uh, which there were not that many black agents in the unit, period. Very, I was the only black female, but very few black agents in the unit, period. So I talk about J.D. and I just uh, having a conversation, and my supervisor walks up and says, you know, J.D., I was reading this article in a magazine on how the black community is being run by black women, and, you know, I think more black women need to be beat to be kept in their place. So it was instances like that. And most, the majority of the discrimination, other than uh, verbally confronting me, like the calling, they call me a nigger. This would be in meetings in the upper superiors or the management meetings where they would refer to me as a fucking stupid nigger bitch. And so there were other witnesses privy to that. There were other people who saw them leaving me on drug deals. I would go into uh, a location and they would disperse. And so... As a team, you go out, and as a team, you're supposed to stay together, and as a team, you're supposed to come back. But much to my surprise, when I would go in uh, to do drug deals, and this came out during the internal affairs investigation from other officers, I only had the evidence of the verbal and the promotion that I, that was approved by the chief, who is the leading? He is it. He is the head of the or the head of the uh, force. So whatever he says, that's what we're supposed to do. And he signed my transfer, and they let me see it and get a copy of it. And then the transfer was blocked. So all the other evidence that came out were from the testimonies of the other officers who were in the other the undercover uh, drug unit with me. Mm hmm. So so what was the final resolution? I mean, you won the case, but, you know, what kind of restitution did they give you? Uh, they couldn't compensate me for the pain and suffering and the torture that I went, to, went through. No dollar amount can ever compensate me for that. But we did come to a financial agreement, and uh, we came to a settlement agreement as well um, that – was comparable 
for uh, the situation, and all parties were amenable to that agreement. Well, I think a question that comes to mind is, you know, after this, uh, what have they done within that department to change the climate in that department and to uh, prevent discriminatory acts such as you experienced from occurring again? Well, they've done absolutely nothing because the my superiors, the defendants in my case, were still there, and they are currently still working there, and they are allowed to retire. Their solution to the problem was to get rid of me. Now, you understand that the discrimination is so institutionalized that it was occurring and happening before I even got there, and it surely wasn't going to continue after I left. I just became... Uh, the problem because I was complaining about it and wouldn't tolerate it. And so what you have is a justice system that was never created for black people that is now serving black people but is still able to discriminate and uh, give disparate treatment uh, in the form of racism to the black people that it serves. And I think that's very clear based on the fact that I proved myself to be one of them. I took all of the tests. I passed everything necessary, certified by the state of Illinois to become a police officer, doing my job, actively doing my job, and doing it well, as I might add. But because of someone's ignorance, because of someone's uh, dislike, their hatred uh, for my skin color and my gender, they felt the need to uh, inflict, try to inflict this oppression and racism on me, which they just didn't know what they had on their hands because I wasn't one to ever take anything like that. And to be faced with that uh, in the 90s, <laughs> the reality is is that racism and discrimination has has not gone anywhere. It has yeah. not gone anywhere. It's been institutionalized, and so uh, we need to wake up and understand the fact of the matter and the truth of the matter is that it's still alive and well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, before we get more into the book itself, uh, you know, just, just want to ask one other question about this situation. You know, what would you advise uh, individuals who are actually interested in joining the department? I would encourage them, still live your dream. If this is your dream and your desire, you have every right to go and pursue that. But understand, as I do when I do my speaking engagements and I take the Veil of Victory and Superhero Huff all around the world, Africa, Atlanta, uh, everywhere that I've been, is that you need to understand that life, the illustration that I use in describing life, I describe it as a chess game. And so you can't very well sit down to a chess game when you're used to playing checkers. Chess is very strategic. Chess is very non-emotional. Uh, it's very calculated, and it's planned because the ultimate result is checkmate, and therefore you win the game. Mm -hmm. So you cannot go into this type of field not understanding where you are and the chess game that is to be played while you are there. So I would encourage anyone who desires to be in law enforcement 
understand what you're getting into. Know the rules of the game because you will so easily be set up to um, to go along, to get along, that it it will it will uh, cause your death literally. So you need to understand what you're getting into, what the game is about, and be the best game player of that game that you can be and keep your sanity, keep your dignity, keep your integrity, because a lot of the officers that were in that drug unit, that undercover drug unit that I was in, are now in the penitentiary. Uh, uh. And, and, and why are they in the penitentiary? Well, I think you. the reality of it is it's a lot of fast money, it's a lot of drugs, it's a lot of access to a lot of things, and that's where your integrity comes in, and it's easy to get set up, and it's easy to fall prey to the game. You know, it's a little money on the table. It's a little unaccounted for money in the closet. You know, right. well, let's just take this and nobody will know. Well, see, right. those those things are tallied up and documented. So when the real deal comes down and you want to speak up because you're being discriminated against, they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Remember back then two years ago when we were in that house and we found that money in that closet and you took some? No, I don't think you should say anything. And then you fall prey to that system again that I speak of. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand very clearly the rules of the game that, you are playing again the justice system was never created for black people so Mm -hmm. you can't seek justice in a system that was never created for you what you have to do is understand the rules of that system and be such a master understander of those rules that you know how to maneuver and operate till you get to checkmate Mm -hmm. all right that's fascinating uh insight on that and I, I you know i guess it really you know gives us an understanding uh, of one of the concerns you know we have in the african american community about this no snitch rule okay because people so many people in certain communities they can't trust the police they can't trust you know the Absolutely. next door neighbor or somebody around the corner it's just you know you don't know who to trust and so you know the whole idea of policing you know, really comes down to us as a people policing ourselves, you know, yes. making a non-entity in terms of anyone having to come in our community and to meet out justice because it's not being meted out in the right way. You don't hear yes. the kind of media around, you know, Asian communities and other communities that you hear about our community. We're the only ones right. that seem to have to have policemen because we're, we're not policing ourselves. So, you know, it goes back to the home. It goes back to the church, the school, you know, shoring up that base so that we police ourselves with with a moral base, you know. And but that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other discussion. But I want to move this on and thank you so much for sharing that with us. But 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 tell us, you know, tell us more about the, your book, The Veil of Victory. And also, I, w- I want you to get into uh, the superhero Huff comic book series. I, I was able to see that. Uh, you, you've got a wonderful book. You, you were fortunate to get a wonderful illustrator for your comic book. I'm excited to hear about this. So tell us more and then tell us about your, your uh, Veil of Victory tour in South Africa. Oh, wonderful. Well, actually, uh, Dr. Shabazz, the uh, 
the accountability or the policing of yourselves doesn't get too far from the issues that I deal with in the Veil of Victory. I grew up being subject to being molested, um, low self-esteem, lack of family support, uh, spousal abuse, and then the discrimination that we spoke of at the police department. So in your saying just a minute ago about policing yourselves, I talk about in the Veil of Victory the harsh realities of life, the things that are imposed upon us when we are so innocent and so young and have no ability to protect ourselves and even have the protection from those who are in charge and supposed to be protecting us. So uh, those those all tie in together with the message of the veil of victory. I come from a real and true place of speaking about the devastation and the pain that I experienced having to go through those situations and even having to deal with that from trusted individuals, family members who actually were in in the position, they were supposed to be my protectors. But because they themselves had experienced some trauma, some uh, dilemma at a young age, they were not able to offer me the protection or be in a position to offer me the protection that I needed. So I addressed those issues in the Veil of Victory in a most clear and concise way, not to uh, point the finger, not to um, say that this is your fault or this is what happened, but to get it out in the open to say that this is a reality that happens in our community and it is a... I apologize, a fire truck is coming by. I pose that in a position in such a way to say that life is going to happen. And unfortunately, we have no control over life, but what we can do is create a plan for ourselves, a guideline, a GPS system, if you will, that can kind of guide us along the way to get to the ultimate destination. And so with this plan in place and already have it formulated, as life happens, which we have no control over, you're better able to stay on that on course. You're better able to get through the situation, to get through the tumultuous experience and stay but, on but let course. Let me just ask you, Arlie, uh, you know, so many, I mean, that's wonderful advice, but it's, uh, I always say that people uh, and, and have been using this, this term more often than I thought I would, you don't know what you don't know. And we have so many of our young people who don't know what they don't know. And so what they accept, some things are things that they accept uh, as the norm, we know are not normal. So how do you help someone or how does your book help someone to get to that space to know what is truly normal? Well, I think we all need to, first of all, understand as human beings that we all don't have the same understanding of normalcy. And so there's always some dysfunction somewhere. And so the Veil of Victory just uses my life as a true testimony to say that to look at me on the cover of that book, you would never know the pages that you read and the things that I've experienced. 
And so the veil of victory is just a, one example, one example of how one can still be victorious, how one can still overcome, depending on one's own resources and self and God, first and foremost, to get that understanding, to seek out the normalcy that uh, one desires, because it's all about how you as an individual want to live. Right. So the veil of victory serves as that uh, instruction or that inspiration to say this can this has these things have happened to me, but it has not determined my future. It has right. not determined. I determine. I empower myself to determine where I want to go from here, what I want to do with this situation, and hopefully look at the different things that life brings as an opportunity. So it, it has a different spin on it if you look at things as an opportunity as opposed to a trial or a tribulation or a travesty. Okay. Okay, great, great. But uh, you know what? We're going to, uh, you know, encourage our, our callers to call in. Uh, we're going to ask them just to stay with us. We're going to be going to our phone line shortly uh, if any callers have um, any questions. So, um Early. We're going to take just a brief break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to see if we have any callers on the line. So, uh, and also before we wrap up, we want to talk about uh, briefly about your comic book and, and your tour. So we're oh, going to sure. go right now. Okay. You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. All black, all news, all you for Saturday, November 26th. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network. Our host is Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. We're going to go to a brief break, and we'll be right back. Please stay with us. Shifting sand, and still he loves me 
just as I am. I tell to my passions to manipulate. Temptations of flesh been hard to resist. Look how much time it takes off me when it ring when broke on me. Those they know me nothing. Too much to often pursue. Forbid of those who have wronged me. I'll tell them forgive them. Wasting my blessings to the boy for a man. And still he loves me just as I am. Just as I am. Yes, he loves me just as I am. Are you hosting an event? Would you even think about leaving 20,000 folks off of your invitation list? Well, stop what you're doing because you don't want to miss sending out an invitation to the 20,000 Chicagoland residents who read South Street Journal's new entertainment and dining section, now would you? The South Street Journal has been serving the Southside community for more than 17 years and has a loyal and expanding readership base. So whether you are hosting an event or cater to those who have events, you truly want to be in the next issue of the South Street Journal. Call 312-239-8835 to place your ad now. This media package includes a web page with clickable links to all advertisers in the entertainment and dining section of the South Street Journal. Success is just a phone call away. Call 312-239-8835 to place your ad today. 312-239-8835. At dollarseed.com, all of our seeds are only a dollar a pack. And we have online resources that teach you all about the rewarding hobby of growing your own plants, flowers, herbs, and vegetables. Imagine the joy you'll feel when your children actually help you harvest your first garden crop, or the pride of knowing you'll never need a florist again. Visit dollarseed.com and grow a little magic of your own for just a dollar. dollarseed.com. What could be healthier? Somewhere a child is waiting. Somewhere a child is waiting for you, and Unity Parenting and Counseling makes it possible for that child to be connected with his new family. Unity Parenting and Counseling will help you through the application process, training, and certification. Call Brenda Weatherspoon today at 312-455-0007 to be connected at the heart. Call 312-455-0007 today so that each day that child is closer to home. 
You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, All Black, All News, All You, for Saturday, November 26, 2011. Today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. You are listening to He Loves... He Loves Me from the International Women of Reggae. We love that. Thank you, Rochelle, for sharing that with us. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. Stay with us. We're going to go to the lines in a little while. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. Great show today. Uh, the chat room is open. You can leave your comments in the chat room. Leave your company information if you'd like us to contact you. That's how we connect. I'd like to share just a little bit of news about Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. We've put out a call for community news reporters, and uh, we're looking for people from all 50 states to give us the 411 on what's going on in their communities. We'd like to select two dependable reporters from all 50 states to give us a monthly update Send it to us in MP3 format, a maximum three or four minutes. We're going to tell the stories out of our community ourselves. So if you're active in your local community, this will be a great opportunity to everyone around the country know what's going on. Or if you're trying to build your voice portfolio, this is an excellent add to the resume if you're majoring in broadcasting or communications. Or maybe you just like a new life experience and just want to do something different, this will be a great opportunity for you. Check our website, Chicago Select Business Network. We have a conference call scheduled for December 6th. You can find all the information there, or you can call me directly. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue. My number is 312-239-8835, 312-239-8835. Now let's welcome our host back to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shabazz. Hey, thank you, thank you. And our guest, Yorley Huff, is still online with us. And, uh, Yorley, can, can you uh, briefly tell us how our listeners can obtain a copy of your book? Sure. They can go on the website, www.thethevailofvictory.com, www.thevailofvictory.com, and purchase it there. And also there are links to my uh, bookstore partners on the site as well. Okay. And for those of you all did, who didn't write that information down, you can contact me also at Books, Inc., that's B-O-O-K-S-I-N-K, at msn.com. That's Books, Inc., like ink and a pen, at msn.com. I'd uh, like to uh, open up the, the lines uh we have any callers who would uh, like to make uh, ask a question or make a comment, and then uh, at the end, I'd like to early uh, to share with us briefly uh, about the South African tour. Uh, uh, Sony, do we have anyone online? Well, let's on check the, phone the lines line. and, uh, and see if the people there have any questions. Caller from five two three one, you're on the air with Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. Did you have a question or comment? Gonna check the other lines. We just wanted to be sure that we don't miss anyone. Caller, we're going to say the last four digits of your phone number. Caller on line 1015, area code 312. Did you have any questions or comments for our host or our guest? Yes, I wanted to uh, congratulate Yuri on uh, her book and to let her know that I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, this is Real Alexis Banks, and I'm fascinated by the comic. Theories. 
and the potential that that may have to, uh, let's say, give some of our little girls something different to look forward to. Well, thank you so much, Rhea. I appreciate you calling in, and uh, thanks for the um, excitement that you have. The comic book series was created for uh, black teenage girls. It's my target audience. I wanted to be able to reach out to them and let them know that there is someone that is looking at them, looking out for them, and working in their best interest. The Veil of Victory is a bit heavy material, so I wanted to reach out to my younger generation, and I understand now with everything that we have going on and everything that is in their environment that they are exposed to, I needed to have something to actually captivate their attention. And so the comic book superhero Huff, she is a no-nonsense, Christy Love type. She is an undercover, and she moved back to the hood where I grew up. I grew up on the west side of Chicago in K-Town. So shout out to all my K-Town listeners and family. Um, She moved back with the understanding that there is something that she has to do And in getting to know herself and getting to learn herself and learn about the special powers that she possesses, she understands that she has to reach back and she has to let these kids know, let the girls know that you don't have to necessarily take the route that you are exposed to. The media, the TV, the radio is all uh, sexualizing them to the point of, ignorant. And so even though you might have the equipment to fulfill that route, that necessarily is not the only route or that might not be the best route for you. So Superhero Hub is going to stand in the gap and say that we can take another route, that you have other options, that you you have to get your education, that you have to be able to understand the rules of the game. Once again, I go back to the chess game. It is chess, not checkers. And the best master checker player could never sit down to the most basic chess game and expect to win. You see, we are bombarded by people who are mastery chess players. They're, they've mastered the, the music game. They've mastered the video game and the TV game industry all to our demise and so superhero huff is going to stand and save the day for our children and say that these are not the only options that you have this might be all that you see this might be all the dope game or the prostitution game might be all and the drug game might be all that you see in your neighborhood but there is another neighborhood that you can go to there's another avenue these are not the only options that you have So that's why Superhero Huff was created. She's also uh, going to have her own toys and action figures and T-shirts. And so we're going, I'm going to expound her to the highest level of exposure and ingrain as we used to have something that the kids can still be a kid and enjoy. Great, great. 
Well, Yorley, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to have to, uh, to cut this part of the interview short, but I hope that you will stay on with us uh, at the end of uh, the show. We're going to have a little wrap-up, and at that time, uh, hopefully we'll have enough time for you to talk a little bit about your South African tour. But uh, on behalf of all our listeners and, and book talk, we'd like to thank you for enlightening us on your wonderful book, your story, and hopefully, and I know it is an, going to be an inspiration to all of us. Okay, so please oh, hold on. Yes, I will. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. And and now uh, we, we'd like to turn to our, our next guest, uh, Frank Lawrence. Uh, we had the opportunity to have some long discussions uh, uh, about a month or so ago, and it's a fascinating story, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his background. Uh, he has an extensive background in film and journalism, uh, he's been a, a videographer, a news editor, news writer for several uh, TV stations out in the, the uh, California area. He is currently the president of the Arkansas American Secret Holocaust Foundation. And I'll let him explain to you shortly what that's all about. Uh, he's credited with over 35 published literary video, video works uh, dealing with education, human rights, desegregation, and environmental activism for the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. So uh, he's actually working on a, a documentary that we want him to talk about, uh, and, and we'd like to welcome Frank to our show. Uh, wel- welcome, Frank. Thank you, Dr. Shabazz. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm so glad that our, our listening audience will share in my joy in having you on here. So let's get right to the, the meat of things. Uh, tell us uh, tell us what the focus is of the Arkansas American Secret Holocaust Foundation and, and why you started this and, and what's going on with it. Well, Dr. Shabazz, as um, we all know, uh, there is another Holocaust, and it has been going on ever since 1619 when we first uh, landed on the shores of Jamestown, Virginia. Uh, but we've been so inundated with the Holocaust as it relates to uh, the other community that we have not given as much attention to uh, our own history as it has uh, given us this, this rich culture, which unfortunately uh, uh, has been written in blood. Uh, but nevertheless, the Arkansas and American Secret Holocaust brings these events to life because they are a part of our rich African-American history. And uh, when I lecture uh, to young adults and teens, I make them aware because I get this all the time. Or our history is so painful, we don't want to uh, do research, study it, uncover it, and talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm whatever I can to... Uh, elevate the consciousness of our youth to understand that our culture, our history, and even though this history has been painful, it's still up to us to share it and bring it forth today. So, Absolutely. And, we, and when we talk about the Holocaust portion of it, uh, the Ash Foundation, Dr. Shabazz, is just simply as it relates to uh, the death of the 21 boys in Arkansas to bring this event into the public consciousness. Now you call this the Wrightsville Twenty One. So tell us, tell us about this story. What happened? All right. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I am working on a short documentary film, but there's also the book, and the book is entitled "Locked In and Burned: America's Secret Holocaust." 
Now, in 1957, we all are aware of the desegregation crisis that took place in Little Rock, Arkansas, and most importantly, the history of the Little Rock Nine. But what we have not been privy to is what has been coined the lost year, and that was in 1959 when uh, the treachery uh, and, and the bigotry of Governor Orville Faubus led to him giving Arkansas voters the right to close schools in 59. Now, there was a Jim Crow institution called the Riceville Negro Boys Industrial School that housed young African-American males from ages 8 to 17 years old. And they would indiscriminately capture, pick up, and take these young black males to this so-called industrial school, which was a euphemism for a prison. And they would house these individuals there in an incarceration kind of a fashion, but instead of teaching them like it was described the purpose of the school, they were being used for slave labor. Now, keep in mind, there was no jurisprudence or habeas corpus for African-American youth. In other words, they didn't have the ability to, uh, to have due process. They weren't even trials uh, that led to these young males being sentenced. Now, they were sentenced to this institution for petty offenses like soaping windows or juvenile delinquency, and they would be given sentences anywhere between six months and sometimes as many as three to four years. So during this period of the lost year in 1959, these young boys housed in this Jim Crow dormitory at the Wrightsville Negro Boys Industrial School, the building mysteriously catches fire, with all 69 boys locked in, trapped, with no keys to unlock the doors. Now, there were no adults on the premises, and the fire department never came out there until the building had totally collapsed. And guess what? As I began doing research on this project over five years ago, no one in the state of Arkansas, if you asked 100 people, had they heard about this event, 99 would say that they'd never heard of it. But nevertheless, these young boys, all trapped with their lives on the line and destined for death, uh, 48 of the boys escaped by kicking off metal window screens. Uh, two escaped, came to Chicago, and 21 of those boys died in that fire in a Holocaust fashion. And 14 of those boys, Dr. Shabazz, died in a pile. Hmm. Now, what was done after this? Was there any kind of investigation at all? Absolutely. But let's keep in mind, we're talking about Jim Crow, Arkansas, 1959. And uh, the law enforcement body typically uh, was an environment where there was no punitive measure against anyone that committed atrocities against African-American people. But here's the circumstances that transpired after the fire. The executive director of the school immediately closed the investigation, called in the FBI to prevent the events of this murderous act from spilling over into the activities that were going on in Little Rock during the desegregation crisis at Central. So when they closed the investigation, that prevented any kind of discovery from outside news sources and other investigatory bodies that may have looked at it other than Governor Faubus' own team of investigators. So in order 
to kind of mix things up a bit and get away from the true reality of the intentional death of these young boys, they immediately came out and gave these five theses as possible causes of the fire. They first speculated that it was lightning. They immediately ruled out arson. And, of course, you, you can't really rule out arson without a long, continuous process. And, of course, science that's available today to check for arson was not available back then, but they immediately ruled out arson. They also introduced the possibility of a makeshift wood stove as the cause. Then the fourth reason they said was possibly faulty wiring. And the fifth reason that they gave as a cause for the fire was spontaneous combustion. So a grand jury was impaneled. Now, the grand jury, along with Governor Faubus, blamed the state of Arkansas, but then they also blamed the individuals that were involved as far as the caretaker, the superintendent, and all the staff because of the neglect associated with not having uh, someone there with keys and not having adults on the premises and why the fire department never showed up until the building was completely closed. So in summary, there was no hardcore investigation done with the kind of oversight that's intended to produce results and bring individuals to be prosecuted as is available today. Well, Frank, let let me ask you a question. Are any of the survivors of this horrible incident still alive? That's a very good question, Dr. Shabazz, and there are uh, five survivors, and I found them all. Uh, I've uh, contacted several uh, in the state of Michigan. Uh, One fellow that lives in the state of Michigan, he lives in Hazlitt, Michigan. Uh, He does not want his name uh, mentioned, but he has agreed, and we have talked on camera. Uh, He left the night of the fire. He escaped. He made his way to Michigan. Actually, he made his way to Chicago first. And uh, what wound up happening is after he got comfortable in the city of Chicago, because during that time uh, there was uh, a a very prolific gang culture, which young black males were protected in groups, which was not the case in the South. But what wound up happening is the staff of the Negro Boys Industrial School came to Chicago, brought him back, and as he relays, they beat him within inches of his life. And during that time, they had what was called whipping nights where the adults would physically beat these young boys for minor infractions, like perhaps wetting in their bed or not doing enough production in the fields when they were working for white farmers. But he also tells that he was forced to scrape remains of flesh that was burned into cinder blocks from the fire so that those blocks could be reused. The of his life made his way back to, to Chicago and then again to Hazlitt, Michigan, where he's been for the last 45 years. So essentially he's been in hiding. Well, uh, let me ask is, you, uh, Frank, let me just ask you, so were, were you able to get any accounts from any of these survivors about what actually happened? Yes, I have, Dr. Shabazz. Uh, there is a young man by the name of Roy Davis. Well, he's not young anymore, except for at heart, and he's 67 years old. I found Roy Davis in a notorious area of Little Rock uh, called College Station. Uh, Roy Davis uh, was there the night of the fire, 
And Roy Davis was one of the first to alert the other young men inside their dormitory that they were locked in, the buildings on fire, and their lives were in jeopardy. Roy Davis was able to remove the steel mesh screens by kicking them off in order to allow 48 of the 69 boys to escape. Now, Roy Davis was put in a position where he spoke to the press the day of the fire. He was never brought in front of the grand jury to give his account of the fact that there were no adults, no keys, and no fire department. So Orville Fabus, the FBI, and the state of Arkansas framed Roy Davis and conspired to send him to prison at age 16 years old. Now, we're talking about a young boy, 16 years old, being sent to Cummins Prison. Well, we're talking about the events that Robert Redford shared in his film Brubaker, where they were digging up skulls and bodies throughout the, the, the area around Cummins Prison. So Roy Davis has been in Cummins Prison nearly 48 years, and when I had an opportunity to finally get inside the prison to talk to Roy, he gave me the accounts of who started the fire and why he was put in a position where he was framed for a murder to get him out of the limelight so that he couldn't share any more information about it with credibility. Now, was so Mr. Talking the, Roy, I'm sorry, was Mr. Davis charged with some, uh, a crime in connection with the fire, or was this a different crime? And, and the, the second thing is, who did he say, or how did he say the fire started? Well, the, those are both very good questions. And you see, Roy Davis was set up, because the reason that he was sent to come into prison as an adult, uh, his due process was violated, all the laws that protect us today, against juvenile records being brought out in the public forum, uh, those uh, laws were not in place. Uh, well, actually, that law was in place. But what they wound up doing was taking his juvenile record convictions and making the system aware that he had a juvenile record to further enhance his sentence. And so one of the headmasters of the school, Roy Relates, uh, on June 16, 1960, Roy was told that he was going on a trip with one of the administrators to the county jail. But, in fact, what they were doing at the request of the white superintendent of the school, they were taking Roy to have him incarcerated at a men's prison. So, in answer to the question, they used his juvenile record and just simply sent him to prison based on juvenile activity and also based on the recommendation of the white superintendent that said, Roy Davis was having a negative effect on the kids that were still remaining at the school. Hmm. So now uh, to the second question, Doctor Schwartz. I apologize. Go ahead. No, no. Yes, I was going to ask about the, the second question. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that Roy Davis shared with me the circumstances surrounding him being framed. And uh, I've gone through over 400 pages of court testimony where Roy Davis was supposedly framed for a murder for a person that he didn't even know. And the state of Arkansas was never able to put the gun in Roy Davis's hands. And this is a direct quote from Roy Davis's attorney, uh, who now is still living and working uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And at that time, Dr. Shabazz, they had gunshot residue testing because the person was shot. And Roy was accused of shooting this person. 
And Roy was arrested within one hour of this, this homicide, but there was no gunshot residue testing on his hands, clothing, face, or anywhere. But the judge on Roy Davis's case would not allow the gunshot residue testing evidence to be brought as part of this trial. And so this whole downward spiral effect of Roy Davis being the patsy in this whole scenario just kind of resulted in what we have today, and that is Roy still sitting in a prison cell at Cummins Prison after some 45 years. So part of the project is to get Roy out through an innocence uh, project because the research certainly indicates that his rights were, were, were certainly violated. Certainly, certainly. So... um I just want to be clear. So, were you able to to talk to him about the event itself and and you know how the fire started? Yes. Uh, okay. Roy tells me distinctly what his involvement was, who actually struck the match. Uh, but I'm not at liberty at this time, Doctor Shabazz, to speak on the specifics uh, because of the fact that the entire circumstances involving the death of these 21 boys will be spelled out in the book. But also, let me share this with you. Uh, The United States Department of Justice and the FBI, as you probably are aware, in 2007, they appropriated over $100 million under what's called the Immaterial Cold Case Civil Rights Crime Act. And these resources, which were uh, supposedly gone to to look into cases pre-1964 that involved death, where there had been uh, no finality, i.e. the Emmett Till case, uh, and, of course, the Matt Graver's case, but that was prior, and, of course, that case was ultimately adjudicated. But a lot of cases out there right now, there are approximately 108 that involve death of African-Americans that under the Bush administration, they said, well, we're going to bring money in to investigate these cases. Now, but just after four years, the FBI is now saying we want to quit because we are now in a position where we can't do any more discovery into finding out these mysterious deaths, and especially in the South, uh, that dealt with the death of African Americans. And so what I'm here back in the state of Arkansas doing is researching another event that just popped up on the radar, and that was the death in 1954 uh, of a man by the name of Isidore Banks. Mr. Banks was a, a wealthy Landowner, one of the first African Americans that owned over a thousand acres of land in western Arkansas. He was tied to a tree, set ablaze, and had over a thousand acres of his land stolen. Mm. So, after my discussion with Roy Davis, I began to follow the money trail, as you should do in all cases, especially of African Americans that involve death. There's always this pretext, whether it's in sundown towns or whether it's in situations where there's massive land loss. Mr. Banks lost over a thousand acres of land, and this land is now the property of the Southland Greyhound Racetrack in West Memphis, Arkansas. Hmm. So, similar circumstances also are involved in the death of the Riceville 21. African American concerned citizens contributed to this Negro Boys Industrial School to the tune of over 3,000 acres, Dr. Shabazz. But guess what? Within 48 hours of this fire, a wealthy, prominent Little Rock socialite came to the state of Arkansas with $226,000 in hand and bought 3,000 acres of land that these boys' schools sat on because the state of Arkansas ruled it to be surplus right after the fire. 
And so when I followed the money trail, I discovered that this wealthy landowner was part of the big picture of how the deaths were used as a pretext to trigger the land sale in order to, number one, use the resources to help in the fight against integrating Little Rock schools. But the fire and the death of these boys was also designed so that the city of Little Rock would put the Negroes in their places at that time. And thirdly and most importantly, this death was designed so that Bobbers could get out of his 14th Amendment violations of uh, equal uh, access to the same educational facilities as all of the children as a direct mandate of Brown versus Board of Education. So mm. it's a cleverly spun web that the FBI has told me that I don't have a case. But you see, from the history of the FBI, they have not been the kind of law enforcement agency that has been the friend of the African-American. This agency has looked at these cases, and they're saying they have no merit. But I have the smoking gun. I have the guy who struck the match. I followed the money trail, and I have all of the circumstances, including land deeds that go back to the 1920s, of how this prominent Little Rock family wanted possession of this land for nefarious purposes. Hmm. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, But, you know, what we want to do right now uh, is to give our our listeners the opportunity to ask you some questions, and then we're going to come back and try to wrap up. Um, Sonia, uh, could you check for us to see if anyone's on the line that would like to ask uh, Mr. Lawrence a question about this fascinating incident? And... um, Get back to us. Okay, thank you. This is, yes, ma'am. You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, All Black, All News, Are You. Today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. We're going to go to the phone lines. We're going to say the last four digits of your number. And if you have a question or comment for Dr. Shabazz or her guest, Frank Lawrence, just say the word. Welcome to Chicago's Black Business Radio Radio Network. This is Book Talk. Did you have a question or comment? Let's check the other line. Welcome to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. Did you have a question or comment for Dr. Jeff? Her guest, Frank Lawrence. I think I'm echoing. Did you have a question or comment? 9677. Radio Network. This is Book Talk. Did you have a question or comment? Let's check the other line. Welcome to Okay, I'm getting feedback, Constance. I'm not sure if you if you can hear that. But let's do this. Let's go to a break, and we'll come back with Book Talk with Dr. Shabazz and her guest, Frank Lawrence.
Just a little bit about who we are. Chicago's Black Business Network is a grassroots business to business service designed to assist the individual business owner in his or her efforts to reach the next level of service and growth in the marketplace. It is our goal to provide a platform for businesses to connect across the city and the country. This is where you create relationships that are designed to take your business to the next level of success. Chicago's Black Business Network is growing. We now have 800-plus members, and it is our mission to plant the seeds and provide the tools for growth to each of our members. Visit us today, www.chicago's, that's Chicago with an S, Chicago's Black Business Network.com. Join us today and touch the world. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder. You can generate cash monthly, weekly, even daily. I don't care what people say. I do it, and so can you. Discover for yourself how you can put more cash in your pocket over the next 30 to 60 days than you've made over the last 12 months. This is a total no-brainer work-at-home opportunity. Check out the video proof and free details at www.tinyurl.com slash 3MC2JT8. Act now or keep wishing you only had the cash in your pocket. Those who take action make things happen. Do you have a loved one who's away at an Illinois Correctional Center that would love to see you today? Let Heartstrings Express assist you. We offer two visits back-to-back. These visits include an overnight hotel stay. Visit heartstrings2ilcorrectioncenters.com or call us now at 708-450-8252. That's 708-450-8252. You're listening to WJPCFM Chicago's Community Affairs Calendar, powered by Chicago's Black Business Network. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network. Join us today and touch the world. This is a message for the residents of the greater Inglewood community in Chicago. Are you ready to unite with other residents to help improve the conditions in your community? Then join RAGE, Resident Association of Greater Inglewood, today. Work together with others in your community to empower youth, assure that your community is safe, protect and provide services to seniors, and promote job sustainability and economic development. Visit RAGE on Facebook or call RAGE at 866-845-1032. That's 866-845-1032 for more information. We're the soul of Chicago. WJPC. You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, All Black, All News, All You. Today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. We're going to go back to Dr. Shabazz and her guest, Frank Lawrence. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sonia. And thank you, uh, Frank, for staying on until the last uh, segment of our interview. Uh, I I want to be sure that our our listeners um, get the critical information, which is, one, please give us the name of your book and also how our listeners can obtain it. Thank you, Dr. Shabazz. Uh, The title of the book is Locked In and Burned, with the subtitle America's Secret Holocaust. And the book should be available within the next 30 days. And the reason that uh, it's not available at this moment 
uh, number one, is because of uh, the efforts associated with the United States Department of Justice. And I would desire to get this event looked at as a cold case. Uh, but let me share this final thought with you, Dr. Shabazz. Uh, poet William Faulkner and author said something that's very important as it relates to our history as African Americans. And he says that the past is never dead. It's not even past. That history is not a static account of past deeds, but a dynamic process of interpreting the past, the present, and it's a process that constantly changes and shapes how we consider our present. This is so profound because this story uh, is one that's dynamic. It, it, it continues to grow in different areas because when you tell a story about how a person lived, how they died, that sometimes is the end of the story. But in this case, what it has unfolded is I'm getting an opportunity now to rewrite the history of the desegregation crisis as we know it in the state of Arkansas and America. But also, there's closure that needs to be obtained for the family members because these young boys were dumped in a mass unmarked grave by Governor Fathers, and we don't know where those bodies are. And one of those young men that needs to be found is my eldest brother. So I have this obligation to my brother to get closure for my mother, and she's 85 years old. Also, there's justice that needs to be obtained for Roy Davis, who's part of this evil kind of a holocaustic event that was just simply the mass taking of African-American males' lives for the purposes of folks that had no intent of giving them justice or care about their lives altogether. So the next step is to get ground-penetrating radar so that we can find out exactly where the remains are, and then comes the finality of uh, doing the final draft and uh, getting it into the hands of my publisher. So I would like to ask a small favor, and that is to have the opportunity to come back uh, once this final chapter, uh, as far as the FBI uh, getting the closure, getting the location of the graves, and, of course, the ground-penetrating radar. Yes, and we'd love to have you come back to give us a wrap-up on that. But, but let me just take a moment to uh, be sure that our listeners know how they can get in contact with you. And then I have a few closing questions. So so how would someone who's interested sure, in purchasing your book and finding out more about this tragic incident uh, get in contact with you, Frank? Just simply send me an email to rightsville21 at gmail.com. And that's rightsville, W-R-I-G-H-T-S, Bill, and the number 21 at gmail.com. Uh, but, of course, there is a link for my telephone number, email address, there's also several links for the movie trailer that's on the CBBN uh, Book Talk website. Okay, and also what is happening as far as the documentary film? The documentary film is finalized, and, of course, there's just simply um, us getting uh, approval um, because the United States Department of Justice has made an announcement two weeks ago in conjunction with the NAACP that since they're finalizing these cases, that they want to notify all of the family members, and we're just simply waiting to find out uh, if our uh, particular event is going to be included in that so that that can be added uh, as the final chapter to the film itself. But there are um, uh, short uh, interviews with some of the family members and the survivors uh, that will be uh, available on the site as well. 
Okay, now is it the documentary under the same name as the book? The documentary is Arkansas's Secret Holocaust, The Mystery Death of the Wrightsville 21. Great, great. Well, we're going to be winding down here with our interview, but I, I do have one uh, burning question. You know, here we, we're in this, what we, they want to call a post-racial society. Uh, what hope do you have to come out of the research on this, this tragic incident? In other words, what changes in society do you expect, or, or do we need to be addressing this at all? Oh, we definitely need to be addressing this because this is a direct correlation with the mass incarceration and in this, in this monstrous criminal justice system that has captured over 3 million of African-American males. Well, there's 3 million people right now in America that are incarcerated, and according to statistics, anywhere between 75 to 80 percent of those are African-American males. Now, this whole mass incarceration scenario wasn't just something that came into play overnight. This event started as an experiment over 50 years ago. So this story just kind of scratches the surface on these events of how our young black males uh, were purpose for this kind of scenario that we experience today. And so this two generations that have passed since that time, we found that very little has changed. So it's a wake-up call. We, we want uh, the contemporary audience of our so-called hip-hop generation uh, to wake up and, and take account of these events because, uh, as Yuri Huff mentioned uh, in her interview, that this criminal justice system has only been unjust to us. And when we think about agencies like the FBI, uh, law enforcement, uh, you can pretty much assume that any favor uh, that needs to be given to us in terms of getting justice uh, is something that has been long overdue, but the finality of it is we just won't get it. And uh, so we have to understand that we have to position ourselves, know who our enemy is, and be aware of circumstances like this, because if history is not recorded, we know that it certainly has the ability to repeat itself. So I don't want this kind of an event to be repeated, and I certainly want our young people to wake up to what's going on in our society today. Well, I can't resist the temptation to ask you, how can we change this? How will your documentary and your book help us to change this? What keys, what, what steps should we be taking as a community to prevent not only the situation that those 21 have faced and what so many African-Americans, primarily African-American males, face, and what your lease discussed in, in her interview with us earlier. Well, first of all, let me tell you what a profound body of work that we are taking part in right now uh, because we're bringing these issues that are of such importance to our community to the forefront, and we certainly have to identify them, bring them to the forefront, and understand that these aren't just issues that are of minor importance. These are issues that are designed to eradicate our culture and heritage right out of the annals of American history. And this system is not playing. 21 boys were killed when 69 were designed to be killed, locked in a rickety old Jim Crow institution in 1959. Now, they may not be locking young boys up in rickety Jim Crow institutions, setting fires and burning them up, but they're still putting them in criminal justice systems, in prisons, in youth facilities, 
And essentially what they're doing is putting them in a whole brand new Jim Crow scenario where they can't vote, they can't get jobs. And so the answer is kind of long and deep, but in the short of it, we've just simply got to take part in a new cultural renaissance that at the forefront has our history. And we have to see that our history has value. But let me add this also, Dr. Shabazz. African Americans have never been able to truly write our history to the extent that this chore has been given to Caucasians. There's a Caucasian fellow in Little Rock right now that seeks to write the same book. Uh, he's well known. He's been given all kinds of resources, but what he's missing is the firsthand accounts. He hadn't sat down with the surviving family members. He has not sat down with the father of Willie Horton, who can tell me that the night of the fire, he actually went to the funeral home and not to the morgue. There was no medical investigation where family members were able to come in and pick out body parts a la carte. And so when we allow Caucasians to write our history, it's damaging to us because they have a tendency to placate themselves, vindicate themselves, and write our history in such a way where their atrocious behavior is almost like it's something that's sanctioned and it's almost like something that's forgiven. But we're the ones who have put our lives on the line for this. And so the thesis of the book is to this. It's, it's wake up. Let's learn our history. But most importantly, what's going on in the judicial system today, is, as uh, Mrs. Huff uh, alluded to, is this criminal justice system is the final hammer that if we don't take heed, a lot more of the innocent, uneducated, unknowing of our people will become victim to this system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this this is all very fascinating, and we hope that uh, our, our listeners uh, have been uh, taking heed of all of this. Uh, we hope to hear from them. Uh, send us your comments. Uh, send it to me at uh, booksinc at msn.com. That's books. I-N-K at msn.com. We'd love to hear your comments about uh, today's uh, authors that we've interviewed, uh, both uh, Frank Lawrence as well as your Lee Huff. Uh, we're going to take a, a brief uh, break. Well, first of all, we want to thank you, uh, Frank, again for, for joining us. We hope that you're going to stay on uh, to the end of the show. We have about 20 more minutes to go. Uh, we'd like to do a little uh, wrap-up. So what we're going to do is take a break right now. And then after we come back, I'm going to give a few announcements about some upcoming events, and then we'll wrap up uh, with our two authors, uh, have a little roundtable discussion, and uh, that will close our, our program for today. So, Sonia, you want to take it away? Absolutely. You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you. Today's segment is Book Talk, and what a fascinating segment it is. Uh, both authors have been just uh, absolutely excellent. I could listen to it a whole other hour. How about another hour, Dr. Shabazz? But we hope to have uh, both of them back because their stories uh, need to be told and need to be told repeatedly, and that's what we do here. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. We may not get to all of your calls today, but we certainly want to thank you for being a part of what we do as we bring forth, as Mr. Lawrence say, our own stories. This is what we do, and this is the purpose and reason that we exist. That's Shabazz, host 
will host the show once a month. She probably needs to do it four times. The time may not permit her to do it, but I think the demand is there, and uh, we want to work with her maybe to do it twice a month, and that would be great because this is some great information uh, that we're sharing here. You can listen to all of our shows in our archives right here at www.chicagosblackbusinessradionetwork.com. Our shows are replayed on Saturdays at www.wjpcchicago.com. This is WJPCFM Chicago, the soul of Chicago. We're looking for original music and spoken word. You can always call me. We'll take a listen, and hopefully we can share that with WJPCFM as well. My name is Sonia Cassandra Purdue. I'm the producer. My number is 312-239-8835. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back with Dr. Shabazz and a roundup with both of her guests. Thank you for being with us.
You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network for November 26th. All Black, All News, All You. Today's segment is Book Talk with Dr. Constance D. Shabazz. At the top of that break, you are listening to African Queen by Shahada. And we know that we are queens, even if we are not on the continent of our motherland. And we have to keep that in mind as we conduct ourselves in this country. We want to go back to our guest now. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Shabazz. Hi. Okay, I'm back. I'm back. Well, look, we, we've had a, a great time today with, with our two authors, and we're going to get back to them shortly to, as part of our wrap-up of the program. But uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, give you some announcements. Uh, first of all, remember, this is uh, Small Business Day, uh, or I call it Black Saturday, and this is a time when you should be going out to support black businesses. This is this is all in, in keeping with what we're about on this radio network. Uh, Chicago's Black Business Network is about promoting African-American-owned businesses, and this is a day that you can make an impact in your, your community. And Books, Inc. is participating in that. Uh, today we have wonderful sales at our our store. It's located at 1835 West 103rd Street. We'll be open until 5 p.m. this, this evening. Uh, we've got sales on, our, our, of course, books as well as uh, Simply Elegant Jewelry, as well as uh, African-American prints. We have uh, tons of Annie Lee prints. And so this is time to kick off your holiday shopping and also supporting a business in your community. Uh, The other thing we want to remind you about our upcoming events on next Saturday, Saturday, December the 3rd, from 1 to 3 p.m., Expressions from Inglewood will be launching uh, their uh, book, uh, the fifth edition of Expressions from Inglewood. It will be hosted by the editor and compiler, uh, Corey Hall. So come on by, support these authors. They'll have five of the entrants in the, the journal who will be there reading from the journal. And that, again, will be from 1 to 3 p.m. at Books, Inc. Uh, the admission is free. Also, the following Friday, December the 9th, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., we'll have best-selling author Brian W. Smith. Uh, he is uh, stopping by Books, Inc. on his tour uh, to promote his book, If These Trees Could Talk. And uh, that will be from, again, 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. The admission is free. Also, on Friday December the 16th through Sunday, December the 18th, we're going to have our Holly Bazaar. Uh, Book Plank will be joined by B-, B Boutique, Exquisite Accessories, and Embellish, along with Simply Elegant Jewelry. Uh, come in and get your holiday shopping on. Uh, this is all going to be held at Book Plank. We're located at 1835 West 103rd Street here in Chicago. So please come and join us. Also, upcoming in January, we want to make sure that you're aware that we're not going to have our regular show in December. Uh, we're going to take the holidays off, and we're going to start up again in the new year, 2012. And our next show is going to be held on Saturday, January the 28th, from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Again, our next show will be Saturday, January 28th, from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Um also, uh, before we, we finish today, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a book that's a, a great holiday read. Uh, it's a book that we republished. It's a new edition called 
of the Origin of Holidays, Myths, Signs, and Symbols. It was written by my husband, and it's a very popular book. So for those of you who are in the holiday mood but want to, to get a better understanding of the true origin of most of the major holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, and the like, please pick up a copy of that book today. Uh, the, the price on it is $19.99, and if you purchase the book today, uh, it, there's a 20% discount. Again, that's The Origin of Holidays, um, symbols, uh, Holidays, Myths, Signs, and Symbols by uh, Aladdin Shabazz, and uh, we hope that you will support us. Okay, well, we're, we're rounding up our show for today, and we'd like to bring back on uh, both Yorley Huff and uh, Frank Lawrence, and uh, we just want to, to uh, give them some closing remarks. Okay. Hey, Yorley, is he still on with us? I'm here. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm going to work out. Back. Dr. Chappelle, Ms. Huff is on the line. I'm not sure if, if Frank is there. Ms. Shabazz, okay. are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, okay. who do we have on the line? Ms. Huff, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Can you hear her, Ms. Shabazz? Hello? Dr. Shabazz, can you hear Ms. Huff? I will do Apparently. She's on the line. Frank, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Okay. Go ahead, Dr. Shabazz. Okay. All right. Uh, your hand, I just wanted you to share with our listeners uh, about this tour, what was the purpose, and, and what were the highlights? Can you repeat that? Yes. Uh, would you just share with our listeners uh, the purpose of your South African tour and just a few of the highlights? Oh, sure. Uh, we I had an interview last November on Kaya FM, which is a major FM radio station in Johannesburg, and we had such a outpouring, uh, well reception. They were asking me to come there and do some lectures and uh, bring the book and the comic book there for their people. They were really amazed and shocked to uh, see the promised land, which America is supposed to be, to have such devastating and uh, familiar uh, instances of racism and discrimination just as they experienced there in South Africa. So I got together um, with my team, and we put together a South African book tour. I went to Johannesburg. I went to Venda in Pumalanga and uh, Soweto. And taking the same message there uh, that I have here, one of empowerment, enlightenment, and encouragement, and the veil of victory and superhero hub did very well there. They have uh, issues of uh, abuse and against women and children of a great deal. It's it's so impactful. Uh, the Veil of Victory just brought out 
the familiarity, the molestation, the abuse, the discrimination, even though apartheid is no longer active there, they still uh, feel the remnants of it and the political and economic deprivation, just as we experience it here. So I think one one thing rang true is that no matter where I went, even though it was on the other side of the world, the black people uh, were still uh, deprived politically, economically, uh, spiritually, emotionally. There is no... I don't think anywhere that I would go that I wouldn't see the same effects of what I experienced here. And so the Veil of Victory and Superhero Huff uh, went there to let them know as well that uh, life is going to happen. And like I said, this chess game of life that we play, you must become a master player. As the gentleman was describing the situation and the the book that he is talking about, the documentary that he is talking about, this is the same, it's been in place, it's institutionalized now. And we are so far behind in our moves when we sit down, when we finally recognize and sit down to play the chess game and interact on the chess game, we are so far behind that it's almost uh, it's disheartening and it's, it's discouragement to even try to catch up. But I assure you, standing as a living, true witness of what God can do and the power that we possess as black people, that once you learn the game, first of all, that you're playing, it's chess. It's not checkers. Once you learn the game and become masters of the game, then you begin to understand and see and know that we all can be victorious. And that is the bottom line and the message that the Veil of Victory and Superhero Huff aim to bring to the young, to the old, to the hopeless and the the disenfranchised. Because if I can do it, there's no, there is nothing so special and unique about me, this ghetto child from the west side that I am, that everyone else can't have it too. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to ask Frank to just weigh in. Uh, any closing statements from you, Frank? Well, I would just like to say thank you so much, Dr. Shabazz, also uh, Sonny Purdue and her hard work uh, in putting uh, this effort together and uh, Ron Carter and everybody that's involved uh, with bringing the necessity to life first and foremost because as journalists and authors and educators, we have an Everyone here on this call and that are listening today understand our obligation as African Americans that in order to procreate our history and take part in us furthering our history, we have to do exactly what we are doing today. And uh, I look forward to coming back to further discuss uh, the finalization of the Arkansas Secret Holocaust Project, the mystery death of the Wrightsville 21, and most importantly, various events that are taking place right now that we must pay attention to. And that's how the United States Department of Justice is seeming to want to hurry up and finalize what they made a commitment to just over four years ago. And we've still got another six years, as it was mandated, by John Conyers of Michigan and also John Lewis uh, from Atlanta, Georgia. But most importantly, I'd like to thank a man by the name of Mr. Alvin Alvin Sykes. And Mr. Sykes uh, was an inspiration for this project because – he was the individual that used his efforts 
uh, lobbying Congress and so on to get the Emmett Till Cold Case Civil Rights Crime Act into manifestation so that we can bring the people to justice that have harmed our ancestors in the past. And finally, Sonia, let me say this. No self-respecting Jewish person would ever want to forget about the Holocaust. They told us that they will never forget. Now, it's incumbent upon us as African-American people to do the same. And let's bring attention to our rich legacy and learn from it so, as Mrs. Huff says, we learn to strategically become chess players to know the rules of the game because we're already been forewarned and we've seen from the past how being in position is so important. Thank you. Okay, Greg, okay, good thing. Sorry, you, uh, you're going to have to put it on mute, but we're, we're closing out now. Look, I, I just want to thank both of our guests, uh, Dorothy Huff, author of The Veil of Victory, uh, Frank Lawrence of his, his book, uh, Locked and Burn, The Story of the Wrightsville 21. Uh, we're definitely going to have both of you all back for future segments. Just want to remind all of our listeners that our next show is going to be on Saturday, January 28th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Please go out today and support your small uh, businesses, particularly your small black businesses. We need your help. And support us 24-7, 365. Until our next uh, meeting, this is Constance Shabazz with Book Inc., 1835 West 103rd Street with Book Talk. Thank you so much, and have a great day, and have a great holiday. Thank you so much, Dr. Shabazz. This is Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network, and thank you, each of you, for joining us today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 